Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome into our fourth and final hour of our block of programming heard each and every Saturday morning. Glad to have you with us. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Interesting topping we're going to cover this hour, duck hunting. Uh, of course, the youth hunt opened up this morning across the state. Next Saturday morning, uh, duck hunting will be open in our coastal zone. The following weekend will be open in the west zone. And then finally, the east zone will open the following week. So for the next three consecutive weeks, duck hunters will be taking out to the rice fields, the swamps, and the marshes in search of waterfowl. And i got to tell you, I'm pleasantly surprised by some of these uh, spur-of-the-moment reports. This front drove a lot of ducks into the state, and uh, people are reporting seeing a lot of ducks out there with the youths and those that are working on their blinds. Well, there's a lot of preparation goes into duck hunting, and one of the things a lot of people do not remember to prepare for is boating safety for hunters. And uh, fortunately, uh, we have Paul Bernard of the U.S. Coast Guard joining us this morning. He's got some super tips and advice uh, for duck hunters who are going to be going out and and maybe have not gone over their safety procedures. Uh, Some of these things uh, people do know. Others uh, maybe have never given any thought. So we welcome Paul Bernard to come in and chat with us a little bit about boating safety for hunters. Paul, thanks for taking time on a Saturday morning to come talk about this, what could be a very life-saving, important issue. Don, uh, man, I tell you, my Facebook feed this morning is filled with pictures of the the youth hunters out there in the marsh, and they uh, they were greeted with a glorious sunrise. So uh, good luck to them. I hope they employed the right safety practices in getting out there. Look, one of the one of the reasons that uh, that that I'm pushing this boating safety for for hunters uh, initiative that we're doing, and you're actually helping me with two parts of it. Maybe we can touch on the second part of it later. But uh, last year we ran an inordinate amount of search and rescue cases involving hunters, um, and and in most cases last year it, it was small boats in big water that created the issues, and we even had a fatality. The fatality involved a. Uh, a friend of a college buddy of mine, so it was a little bit tough to, to, to sort that one out. But just wanted to uh, to take the opportunity to go over the things with your listeners we feel like will be the most important things they can do to ensure they have a, a safe hunting trip. Uh, was that incident you're talking about, the one down in Venice? Yeah, the one on the Mississippi River, Don, right, uh, right. where they yeah, uh, yeah. they headed across the river. And that was kind of a you know, you don't often think of the the river as a rough body of water, but uh, we were at high water last year, and the wind was pushing against the current. And when those waves meet that current, it just stacks them up and makes it nasty, kind of like it is at the mouth of South Pass, for example, sometimes when the when the current's rolling out of there. But, uh, yeah, unfortunate situation. They, they they got out there, realized that they were uh, that it was just a little too rough, and as they turned around, the boat was overcome. Uh, about you know the waves and the current two of the people made it back to the bank uh one of them did not none of them were wearing life jackets and you know that's a bad combination not wearing a life jacket and um you know a lot of times we have our waders on and we have heavy clothing on so it's just uh it was just a, the, the wrong combination of elements for them yeah as tragic as those accidents are uh, at least 
at the very least, they serve as a reminder to other people. There's another story that broke. It, it just happened recently. Uh, the duck hunting season is open up north, and uh, there was a, a guy who was very popular. He was uh, part of a professional uh, team with uh, endorsing by Boss, B-O-S-S, which is a shell manufacturer. His name was Tony Larson. And unfortunately, they went out on a very dark night in some rough water hunting divers, and three people went in the water. Two survived, and he did not. And it's just a very tragic case where he leaves a wife and three kids behind. And the bottom line, it has been a lot written about it from his friends, and the bottom line was there's no duck in the world worth not coming home for. And I think people have to have that in mind because, you know, you're a duck hunter, and you know what it's like, especially on opening day or the first time you've gotten out for the season. You're all anxious and pumped up about it. And if you get some pretty tough conditions, either fog or high north winds, and you've got to cross open water, People take chances. I think we've all done it. And uh, it's, it's, you just have to kind of sit back and say, no, nah, I think I'll, I'll save this for a better day. But with that in mind, tell us what you got. You have an excellent article, and I'm, I'm glad you're going to point this out. And I hope we got the attention of all the duck hunters. If we don't, we're going to have this put on our podcast, and they can listen to it later on. So if you would, just kind of start us off and, and talk about it. You already mentioned that, you know, you've been getting an increase in the number of search and rescue calls that, that come up because of uh, the hunting situation. So from there, just kind of take it and talk about some of the dangers that people may not be thinking about. A lot of people don't even think about these things. All right, let's uh, let's start with something that I think we all see. Let's talk about those navigation lights on your boat. For most of uh, most of the duck hunting boats, you're just going to need to have that red and green. It can either be a combination or separate side lights. Uh, some people call them running lights, but they're the red and green lights that are going to be up on the bow of the boat. And they need to be they need to be purpose built navigation lights. I've seen like Christmas light bulbs hanging up there, and these little uh, color LED strips coming from uh, from the big box uh, hardware store. So it's got to be a purpose built navigation light. And then there also has to be an all around white light that's visible from 360 degrees. Um, a note of caution there is that uh, you know a lot of times we we have consoles and and people they're in the boat, so they they need to be elevated where they are where they're visible above all the obstructions. Um, and, and a word of caution here, you know, part of, part of this uh, safety initiative that we're on for our, for our hunters is, a, is an enforcement. Uh, there's a, an enforcement component to it. And we're partnering with a lot of the different parish sheriff's departments, their marine units, and we are going to be out in force at, uh, at boat launches to make sure that everybody has what they have to have before they launch. So, uh, Please don't let your trip come to an end before it begins. Get these navigation lights ready. That's going to be one of the things that we check on really quick uh, as you're heading out. Another note of caution, we just had a powerful front come through. Uh, those fronts, as you know, particularly in these shallow backwaters, they, they can push every bit of the water out in a hurry. So pay attention to, to all aspects of the weather, particularly, you know, if that wind's the front's expected to come through. During the day, don't let it leave you high and dry. It, it happens uh, several times every season that that happens. Now, you know, Don, I touched on life jackets. Uh, there are so many different life jackets out there on the market. You don't have to think of it in terms of these, uh, you know, these confining, uncomfortable life jackets. They make camouflage float coats that are Coast Guard approved uh, devices. There's inflatables of all sorts out there that you literally forget that you have on. My wife and I use belt-style inflatables when we go out on our kayaks, and uh, 
those things are so comfortable. The last time we went kayak and we uh, loaded the kayaks back in the truck, started driving home, I looked over at my wife and chuckled. I said, you still have your life jacket on. She looked at me and said, well, you do too. <laughs> I didn't even realize I had mine on. They're that comfortable. Um, so find some kind of device that you'll wear and wear it, please. Um, communication is a big issue. A lot of our duck hunters go out there, you know, their boats are small. They don't have an installed VHF. They're going out with nothing more than a cell phone. That cell phone may be in their pocket. And if there's a, there's a, a, a circumstances under which that thing gets wet, now they have no means to communicate at all. But uh, think about a handheld VHF. Think about maybe beyond that, a PLB. I carry a PLB with me everywhere I go. That's a personal locator beacon. It's just a, a small size EPIRB, if you will. Um, if you're going to rely exclusively on a cell phone, think about a power stick to uh, recharge your battery if it starts draining. And definitely get one of those waterproof pouches to keep it in. Um, so make sure you have some means of communicating. And uh, another important part of that is a float plan. A float plan communicates to somebody that's back ashore where you're going, what you're going to be doing, when you anticipate being back. And if you don't come back, a good float plan will help us locate you. Um, you know, with uh, regard to that float plan, I was just going to say with regard to that float plan, you know, there are some official forms that, that you know, kind of quiz you and you fill in the blanks and it's a very detailed outline, uh, you know, asking, you know, exactly what type of equipment you have and, and other details. But just a simple note to a sleeping wife of where you're going and what time you expect to be back, you know, because I know they've gotten calls to go out and search for people. And they said, well, my husband went fishing, but he, he should have been back a long time ago. He's not normally this late. Well, where did he go? I don't know. <laughs> he could be in Grand Isle. He could be in Venice. You know, specific directions of where you're going to be as you can is so important. Yeah, it really is, Don, and, and it's and it's easy to do. It's not like when we're hunting where we do what we do when we're chasing fish. Sometimes we go one place looking for fish. They're not there. We end up 10, 10 or more miles further away. So it's really easy when you're going duck hunting. You know where your blind location is going to be. Tell them where you're going. Give them all the contact information. Here's something else I want you to think about. You mentioned, um, you know, a float plan can be simple. In this electronic age, have a picture of your boat uh, ready to provide to anybody that might come looking for you. It can make such a big difference, especially when so many boats look alike. One little thing can tell our uh, our rescuers that, you know, if a helo's flying over an area with with 10 or so boats, the, uh, the the features that they see in that photo of your boat might let them know which one is you. Um, so uh, plan on having a photo available. Um, I don't what know how much time idea. you got. Well, we do need to get a break. This is a good time for a break. When we come back, I want you to talk about the hypothermia situation that we get. And people don't realize that hypothermia can occur even when it's not bitter freezing cold we're talking with paul bernard u.s coast guard he's got some tips for our duck hunters when you're headed out in the next couple of weeks some things some reminders how to be prepared to, for the unknown and also to take some safety precautions to, to keep your, your loved ones informed of where you are and what you're doing we'll be right back you're listening to more outdoors good saturday morning and we're talking boating safety for hunters with U.S. Coast Guard Representative Paul Bernard. And, Paul, before the break, we talked about hypothermia, uh, weather situations. Uh, kind of run down that for People don't realize I have I've 
been fortunate enough I've never fallen into extremely cold. Well, actually, I did. I I, I took a little spill. I, I was in shallow water, and I got waist-deep wet. I uh, was being pulled in a pirog, uh, going to scout for ducks, and a front had been passing through, and it got extremely cold. And the guy that was towing mine had the engine on his, and he pulled it where a rope that the tow rope got caught under a cypress uh, tree that was leaning at about a 45-degree angle. And when he made a turn, I was howling, but he couldn't hear me because of the engine, and flipped my P-Rog, and I got wet from the, from the waist down. And i got to tell you, I, before I could get back, I was into the early stages of hypothermia where I had uncontrollable shivering and chattering, but I've never fallen into a, a life-threatening situation, although that could have been had I not been able to get in in time. Uh, but I've seen people who have fallen in the water when it's cold, and they it just takes their breath away, that, that, that shock. And they might be an excellent swimmer, but when you hit that water in that cold temperature, it just puts you into this state of shock where you can't swim. And I've seen people actually have to get pulled out from the bottom in those situations. Well, yeah, Don, I uh, I had the uh, the pleasure of listening to a presentation from a, a British professor who's done the most extensive body of uh, of research on cold water shock as as anyone, and uh, one of the things that he mentioned in there is that you just cannot prepare your body for that initial shock, and cold water shock can hit you at temperatures at water temperatures. As, uh, as warm as 70 degrees. You think of 70 degree water, you don't really think it's cold, but it is cold enough to induce cold water shock. And what cold water shock is, it does two things. It's going to cause a gasp reflex, and if you, it, an uncontrollable gasp reflex. And if you happen, if your your mouth is, and nose are beneath the surface of the water and you take that, that, gas, that reflex gasp, then, uh, th- then you're in deep trouble. And if you don't have a, a PFD on, you're even in deeper trouble. But then beyond that, for like the first minute that you're uh, you're in that water, you don't really have the ability to function. Then after about a minute, your body gains some ability to function uh, up until the point that, that, that hypothermia sets in. And obviously, the colder the water, the more quickly hypothermia sets in. So let me give you just a quick caution. You know, it... We, we mentioned that it doesn't take really cold water to induce hypothermia. Two weekends ago, we had that, the first of those little tropical systems that came through. Tropical storms moved through really quickly. We had a pleasure boat that was on a, a voyage from Tampa to, uh, to Panama City, got caught in that, capsized and sank. And the family called us uh, when they did not report in. We found one of the survivors of that uh, had been in the water for pretty close to 24 hours uh, and was very, very close to death. We got him evacuated to the hospital. The uh, The medical staff there said that they had never pulled anybody back with a core temperature as low as his, and that was in water temperature that was 80 degrees. So it does not take much at all for hypothermia to set in. Uh, another thing to think about is, you know, we, we often – operate in shallow waters when we're duck hunting. If you fall in in shallow water uh, and you get out, your body does not cool as quickly in the air, but it it will obviously, if you have wet clothes on, it's going to cool much, much more quickly than if you had dry clothes on. So think about something. I love these little silver emergency blankets that you can buy anywhere for uh, that has uh, camping supplies. They're four or five bucks, and they can serve a number of functions. And and one is that if you're uh, 
if you're wet and you wrap yourself in those, it's going to block out any wind and, and it's going to trap your body heat. They also make, and I think we're going to see this Thursday when you and I partner on a little project, I think you're going to see that they make a great passive signaling device for any rescuers that might be in the area. Those things really stand out, particularly if there's um, if there's any sunlight reflecting off of them. And, uh, and again, I hope our, our demonstration uh, Thursday will show that to your viewers. But yeah, it's 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 a real threat. And uh, another thing is these shallow ponds that we're duck hunting in right now, with this cold air that moved in, they cool much more rapidly than big water. So um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of those dropped down into the 60s with this 40 degree the weather that we have right now. Mm-hmm. You talked about the little uh, the, the reflective uh, blanket or whatever they call it, sportsman's survival. But I've, I've had one for years. I can't. They don't go bad. I mean, you, I've carried it. Unfortunately, I've never had to use it, but it's always in my fishing or my hunting bag wherever I go. Tell us about the ditch kit. What are some other things, uh, survival equipment, very important things like that, that you may not think about bringing but should put together and bring with you whenever you're out hunting? Yeah, you know, Don, it's not uncommon at all for our offshore fishers to have a ditch kit in, in which they have all kinds of survival equipment. I've got one for when I go offshore. It's in a it's in a bigger ditch bag, but I have one of those little floating waterproof boxes that that when I'm operating inshore, I take with me. It's got my uh, floating waterproof VHF in it. It's got my PLB in it. A PLB is best kept on your person. Uh, if, if it's practical to do that, but mine stays in my little box, and I'll keep this box out on the deck right beside me. Um, you don't think too much about it, but, uh, you know, bugs can get really bad, particularly when it's warm in the marsh, so I'll keep some bug spray in there. I've got a windproof lighter. I've got flares, several different flashlights in there, glow sticks. I've got a little multi-tool. I've got several of those uh, those blankets, and uh, I forget where I stumbled across this, but... Uh, Orange bandanas, and I like them for a number of reasons in a survival situation. If you're floating out there in the middle of the water, you've got a bunch of camouflage clothes on. Uh, say your your life jacket is camouflage. That is not much of a target for our rescuers to pick up on. But if you've got one of these bandanas and you and you put it on your on your head, you've got a great big orange pumpkin out there for our rescuers to see. And then if they uh, if you happen to make it uh, ashore and your bandana is dry, you wrap this around your head, it's going to preserve a little bit of your warmth. You lose more of your body heat through your, your neck and head than anywhere else. Uh, they can also work to, to bind things together, tie things together. But more than anything else, and this is another thing we hope to to, to show your, your viewers Thursday, is that they uh, they just make a great search target. And... Um, Man, I'm telling you, when you're out there in all this camouflage gear, trying to hide from uh, from the ducks, you're you're also hiding from the rescuer. So think about having some of these things between that survival blanket and orange bandana. You got five dollars worth of stuff that can save your life, and it fits in a pocket. So there's really no reason not to grab some of this stuff next time you're out and about and keeping it with you. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see. Uh, all of your listeners and viewers come up with one of these little inshore ditch kits. They're largely inexpensive in the grand scheme of our uh, the, the cost of boating and hunting, and, and truly can be life saving in some in some conditions that are generally unfavorable. Very, very good. Uh, Paul, we're going to take a break. we come back. Uh, we're going to get Brian Cook to join us and tell his story. i got a couple of stories about 
behavioral things. You know, we've talked so far about equipment, but as far as how to behave if you become in a, a rescue situation, uh, whatever you do, the action you take can also largely determine whether you, you, you live or die. And also I want to talk a little bit about the dogs. You know, that's another issue when people go hunting. A lot of times they forget about man's best friend, and uh, they're not they're not hypothermia-proof uh, either. You know, they can take a lot of cold. They're made that way, but they still need some special care. All right, we'll be right back with Paul Bernard. We're also going to be talking to Brian Cook. We're talking boating safety for duck hunters. Also going to tell you about something that will be on television. I want to invite you to tune in to coming up next week for the same topic. We'll be right back after this quick timeout. You're listening to More Outdoors, WWL 105.3 FM HD2. Well, maybe we're not going to take a break. Um, we may be having a technical difficulty at the studio. Uh, let's talk about the dogs while we got some time, Paul. Uh, you, you, you put together some really good advice about that. And, you know, a, hun- a man's hunting dog, <laughs> they can be as close to him as their, their children or their best friends. Uh, they are indeed. Uh, I've got, um, I'm camping over in Ocean Springs, Mississippi uh, right now got my little black lab with me and don she is absolutely family uh, so last year you know i mentioned we ran a lot of a lot of sar cases and i was surprised by the number of dogs that were involved in these sar cases now the helicopters we use along the gulf coast get very very crowded uh if we rescue two people if we rescue a third person and there happens to be a dog with that group we're not going to have room for that dog in the helicopter so Man, I'm telling you, if I was a rescuer and I had to leave a dog behind, it would break my heart. So let's give those dogs every conceivable opportunity to survive. The neoprene vest provide additional warmth and flotation and um, and could be just the, the, the ticket to make sure that your dog makes it home with you when you go. Uh, yeah, we uh, we've actually gotten pretty good at hoisting dogs. We'll do that. We uh, obviously put the the human life first, and we ha- if we have room to hoist a dog, we will. But uh, unfortunately, we have to make that decision sometimes uh, what to leave behind, and it uh, unfortunately is going to be the dog. So I, I hope that would never happen to any of your your listeners. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if some people said, "Look, take the dog and come back me, come get me later." But that's not the protocol. I'm telling you, that's that 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 would be my mindset. I'm telling you, I love this dog of mine. She is just incredible. Yeah, um, I've got I don't, three I don't know if you've, uh, you've I don't know if you got it set up where you can take your break or not. But I I did kind of I forgot to mention something that's really important. Our duck boats we'll are heavily catch it loaded. On the- we got. Yeah, we'll catch that on okay. the backside. We're ready for the break, and then we come back. We'll start off with that, and we'll get Brian Cook. And I got a couple of survival and not survival stories to talk about. Back with that right after this. And back with Paul Bernard, U.S. Coast Guard. And, Paul, uh, before we broke, you were talking about loading a boat, particularly duck boats. We duck hunters have an awful lot of gear. Yeah, and I just I wanted to put this caution out there. I know despite the fact that I implored everybody to wear a life jacket, there's going to be a number of boaters who don't. Those life jackets are required by law to be readily accessible. So make sure they're right there by your side, not buried under six or seven decoy bags and some blind material and your shotguns. Uh, 
keep them right there by your side if you're not going to wear them. So just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, that's called a compliance life jacket instead of one that really works. It saves your life. you got to have it on for it to work. Um, Brian Cook joins us, and we're going to get him to tell his story of, of a rescue. But there's a couple of things I want, stories I wanted to tell that I, I personally was involved in covering, and it just demonstrates the difference in behavior, what it the difference it can make in whether you survive or not. Uh, the first case involved, a, a, he's now a charter captain, but it happened to him when, when he was a teenager. He's Captain J.W. Berry. Uh, he's a professional guide, works in the Venice Grand Isle areas. And when he was a teenager, he was a, a, an ardent duck hunter, and he went duck hunting by himself and didn't return. And he had problems, and uh, they, they went to look for him, and the temperature started dropping overnight. He was wet. And what he ended up doing was, and I don't know where he picked this up or learned it, but he was getting marsh mud and breaking grass. And he packed the marsh mud on himself, stuck the grass between his clothes and his skin, and he got underneath the pirog. Now, that wasn't the best thing to do as far as being found because they went out and searched for him, gave up the search, couldn't find him, and his dad just wouldn't give up and insisted they go back out again at night with someone else. And they actually found him when they were searching the flashlight across the marsh. They saw what they thought was a scarecrow. He was covered in mud with straw stick, not straw, but puffing, oyster grass sticking out of every part of his clothes. And he was healthy and uh, he was little, he was chilly, but, but he survived. And the action he took uh, helped him survive. He might have been found sooner had he had some type of signaling defense because an upside-down pirog covered over a camouflage guy full of grass is not the easiest thing to spot. The other case was one that happened in Madisonville, Louisiana, a pl- place where I used to duck hunt an awful lot. Three guys left to make an evening duck hunt. Uh, they went in a small flatboat. They dropped one hunter off on a point of land. The other two proceeded to go further down the canal, actually out of sight, and pull up on the bank, and they were going to hunt there. Well, when darkness started to come and they were ready to leave, the two that were in the boat, uh, tried to start the engine. They had, they couldn't get the engine started. They ended up having to spend the night. They walked around. They scooped up some driftwood, some grass. They made a fire with the gasoline from the engine, and they were found the next morning. They survived because a front had passed through. When they went out there, they were dressed for 70-degree weather, short sleeve shirts, just light pants, no jacket, windproof, anything like that. The other one, he didn't know what was going on. This was before the age of cell phones. He had no communication. He was left on that point by himself. He had no idea where the other two was, if they had gotten an accident or drowned. And rather than sit tight to be rescued, he decided he was going to try to walk out through the marsh. And he started walking. He he got tired. He stumbled. He'd fall. He got wet. And this was all determined after they, they, they did the investigation on it. And they determined that eventually he just got hypothermia set in, He lay down and basically froze to death, and they found him the next morning frozen. The other two had survived because they they had the wherewithal. Of course, they had something to to work with, the gasoline from the the engine. But two instances of of behavior that some people survived and others didn't. And with that, uh, let me introduce Brian Cook. Brian, thanks for, for tuning in with us and joining us this morning to tell your story. Tell us your story from your perspective about being rescued, what you went through, what you did, what you would do in the future, or what you wouldn't do. Hey, Don, good morning. Uh, yeah, so uh, August 
of this year, uh, me and my cousin were fishing out of Hopedale, um, and we was in Bay Elway. We were trying to get to Morgan Harbor. We went through this pass. It's uh, out of bayou, and it looked like a normal bayou. So um, we wound up going through this cut, and uh, it looked like a normal cut. It looked like it had water, but come to find out, it was very shallow. So I wound up getting stuck in the middle of this bayou, and I wound up um, – I have a Sito uh, membership, so I called Sito. Sito came out there and couldn't get to me, so they didn't have a lo- rope long enough to uh, to pull me out. So they wound up calling the Coast Guard. So they sent the uh, the uh, Coast Guard helicopter out there, and, and uh, they wound up sending a rescue swimmer down on a, uh, the cable and, and uh, pulled me and my cousin out. And uh, from there, uh, you know, the, the the key, the critical item with that rescue was my VHF radio. I had uh, I had cell phones, I had all of that almost safety gear, but the the cell phone didn't work out in that area. It didn't have any service, so the VHF radio is what would actually was able to get me in touch with the uh, the Coast Guard. So um, that was the key item. So it actually. Um, we wound up taking us to the Bell Chase, and we left the boat out there. And you know, we didn't have any injuries. The boat was fine. We wound up um, going back the next day, and Sito uh, actually pulled me off the flat, and uh, we were able to get the boat off the next day. So, but uh, other than that, you know, it was it was just a crazy ordeal. And uh, you know, like I, I would tell you, your listeners that. I would you know, make sure you have all your safety gear, life jackets, uh, uh, fire extinguishers, throw cushion, and a VHF radio. I had a VH radio, VHF radio on the boat, and I also had a handheld VHF radio. And that was key, too, because I was talking to the Coast Guard and the CETO at the same time. So that kind of helped out. But I got two boats, one for, for fishing and one for duck hunting. And I'm actually duck hunting right now i'm actually pulling up the boat in reggio um so but my my duck boat doesn't have a uh, vhf radio but now I'm, I'm starting to bring my handheld with me on you know with the during duck season so that's something that i kind of changed from from that rescue that, that i wasn't doing before so that's pretty much the Any, any story. anything else that uh, maybe a mistake that you made or something else that you would would do in the future that you learned from that experience? Um, not really. I mean, I think the depth finder was going in and out, so it didn't really. I couldn't really tell how deep the water was. Um, I, I would just, I guess, talk to friends and and find out the area that you're going to be fishing and know the area that you're going to be navigating through. Um, I mean, that's pretty much. And make sure, you know, like I said, have all your safety gear. Have, uh, you know, backup charges for your cell phone, your, uh, a backup VHF radio. Um, and that's pretty much it. And just be safe on as the water. Far as, as far as your membership with CETO, uh, in this instance, they just couldn't help you. But because they were there, they, they assisted in getting the Coast Guard out there. Is that correct? Right, yeah. So the guy, the captain was uh, Gary, 
with Cito. Um, he came out there, and like I said, he, was, he couldn't get to us because it was too shallow. He didn't have rope long enough. He, he had a pirog in his boat that he paddled, like, maybe, I think he got it around 70, 80 yards was, like, the closest he got to us. Um, but he couldn't do anything else after that. Um, so, and that's, he, I actually, I think Gary was actually a retired Coast Guard member. So he actually was talking to the Coast Guard, and he was the one, I think, made the call to have them come out with the uh, helicopter. Mm-hmm. Paul, is that common for CETO and Coast Guard to work hand-in-hand? Absolutely, Don. If if we get a call uh, that somebody needs assistance, one of the first things we're going to do is ask them if there's any of the commercial providers that they would like for us to contact on their behalf. You know, if it's not an emergency, uh, we w- that's always going to be the first thing we ask them. Then if they're if the providers are in a situation where they can't respond or, or, or can't render the assistance that's needed, they'll partner with us. And uh, yeah, we have a, we actually have a very complimentary relationship. Our policy is written so that we uh, we meet with them. Um, two times a year, just to discuss our uh, our relationship and and and, and the and uh, in, in the terms of our relationship, we're uh, not not allowed by law to compete with commercial enterprise. So we have to be very careful that we uh, you know that certain criteria is met before we respond. Uh, otherwise, we'd be cutting into their business. So, yeah, great relationship we have with with all of the commercial providers, uh, not only locally but all across the country. It's a very well structured and productive relationship. Great. Paul, we're going to take a break here and we come back, if you would. Uh, let's talk about communication, when to contact the Coast Guard and what to be prepared to tell them. And if it has to go by way of a third party for some reason where the person stranded can communicate with someone else but not the Coast Guard, what should they tell them to relay to the Coast Guard? We're talking with Paul Bernard, U.S. Coast Guard PR, Public Relations. We also have Brian Cook on the line. We're talking boating safety, especially with an emphasis on hunting because duck season are open for youth this weekend, and then the regular seasons begin next week on, on into the winter. We'll be right back. You're listening to More Outdoors. And we're wrapping up our broadcast with uh, Paul Bernard, U.S. Coast Guard, and also Brian Cook, who experienced a rescue earlier this year. Uh, Paul, what should someone be prepared to tell the Coast Guard? First of all, when is it time to call the Coast Guard, uh, when they will come out and respond? What questions will they be asked? And if they have to relay it through a third party, what should they be prepared to tell that person? So let's let's address when to contact the Coast Guard. Uh, just when when you think that you might need help, whether you're certain or not, it's better to bring us into the process early than to to hesitate and and lose the opportunity to bring us into the process. So just when you kind of get that uh oh feeling, give us a call and we'll uh, we'll help you sort things out from there. So when yeah and uh, sorry, I had just a little bit of uh, feedback coming through. And, and then the single most important thing that we need from you is your position, your location, and a good one at that. Uh, we, we, latitude and longitude is preferred, if not as precise a geographical location as you can possibly give us. With that position, if we don't know anything else, we can at least get out there and get things sorted out while we're out there. But we also like to know um, how many people are on board the vessel, the specific nature of the problem, uh, a, a good description of the boat to include the vessel registration numbers and uh, 
and, and then we'd also like to know whether the, the people involved have their life jackets on. Those are, that's kind of what we call the big five right there. Position, and, nature of the problem, description of the boat, number of people on board, and life jackets. And what radio channel should they use? What frequency? And also, if they're using a cell phone, what number do they call? Uh, the uh, the frequency you want to use on your VHF radio is channel 16. And, Don, I, the number is uh, 504-365. I think it's 2609. It's either 2609-2209. If somebody can just go online and Google that real quick and tell me which one. I've got it I've got it programmed in my phone, but I'm afraid to pull the phone away from my ear and fumble around <laughs> to, to get it. I've been there. I know what, you, I've, I know what you're going through. <laughs> I've, I've got it listed as Coast Guard Sardesk, and, and I call them all the time, but because I've got them on speed dial, I don't have the number committed <laughs> to memory. But it's either 2209 or 2609. Uh, I hope somebody can can dig that up for us while we're still on the air and get that out to everybody. But do, do program that number. You can just Google Coast Guard Sector New Orleans Command Center, uh, and, and that will give you the number that you want to call. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned your friend uh, J.W. Barry, and you mentioned that other case where uh, there was a fatality. Going back to this little ditch kit that we have, if you think about the items that I told you would be good to have in there, that would have made a life-saving difference in the case of your friend that passed. And would have uh, resulted in a much quicker rescue of the guy that was smart enough to bury himself in mud. I've actually heard of and worked a couple other cases that were burying themselves in mud saved their lives, but it it confounded us locating them. I think that's the third case that I've heard of where they did that. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Paul, if you would, tell us about the uh, the, the exercise that we're going to be doing next week. Uh, people will be able to get some more information and actually see some of these things we're talking about on television. It will be on a future edition of Bayou Wild. We'll try to get that on as soon as we can during the duck season. But on the news, on the 6 o'clock news on WWL Channel 4 and the 10 p.m. news on WBRZ Channel 2, uh, we're going to show some highlights of that exercise. Explain what they'll be seeing. Well, uh, you'll, you'll see a couple of things. We're going to do a couple of things dockside, and uh, Brian, your guest, is going to help us with one of those. He's going to show us a layout of his boat. We've worked together to make sure that his boat is a, is a model boat uh, in terms of the equipment that he has on board and compliance with all the applicable regulation. So he's going to help us with that, and then your uh, your camera crew is going to get up on a helo, and we've taken two of the items from that ditch kit two of the least expensive and uh, and two of the ones that take up the least amount of space. These are the things that could fit in a, uh, a jacket pocket in that uh, that emergency blanket and that orange bandana. So we're going to do a search pattern. We're going to give our, our air crew a search pattern. We're going to fly out over the marsh looking for a duck hunter who has no signaling equipment whatsoever, which is uh, unfortunately not uncommon. And then we're going to run the same search pattern again, with the duck hunter with a, uh, the emergency blanket out and an orange bandana on his head. And I hope you never know when you're doing these things if the camera can pick up what the human eye can pick up. Our pilots will tell you very quickly that the, the silver blanket and the, the orange bandana make all the difference in the world. And we hope to be able to demonstrate that with your, with your cameraman. Got it. Um, our producer, Doug Christian, uh, got that phone number for us. It's 
Okay, that might be you, Don. That might close. be one that rings to a. Uh, that might uh, be one that rings to uh, a switchboard. But my Sardesk number from back many years ago when I sat on that Sardesk was the 09. I got you. But uh, um, okay, if that's what if that's yeah. what they're showing, it's a it's a good start. What about nine one one? Can that the person that's answering the nine one one calls? Do they have a direct link to Coast Guard if that's what's needed? Yeah, they can. They can always uh, patch us over or take the information and call us. Uh, and in some cases, I don't know if it's still the case, but I, I know that, uh, back when I was uh, working as a SAR controller, St. Tammany Parish had a good geographic locator in their 911 service. It, it was a really good one at that time. Orleans Parish did not, and Jefferson Parish did not. I don't know if it's changed since. But just a word of caution about using 911 as opposed to the Coast Guard. The 911 operators do not appreciate the importance of position the way that mariners do. Just for example, I got a patch from a 911 dispatch one time. Not a patch, but uh, they called and said that they, they had a call from a boater who was, uh, who was by the causeway and broken down and adrift. And that's all that they got for a position. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, the causeway has two sides. By might mean... You know, right by, or it might be mean three miles away, and that causeway bridge is is 25 miles long. So they, they're just not accustomed to and don't understand the value generally of a pinpoint position. Mm-hmm. Does the Coast Guard number have a locator, a GPS locator on incoming calls? Uh, as of when I departed the command center uh, seven years ago, we did not. I do not think that they. They have that presently have that capability, although we can go through the cell phone providers and uh, and get location uh, position information through the providers. There's a little bit of an administrative process there for us to do it to make sure we do it in compliance with the law, the privacy laws. Brian, what was your experience with communicating with the Coast Guard? You weren't put on hold or had to go through a menu or anything, listen to music or anything, did you? No, I had, um, I was on just Channel 16, and they actually, uh, once I made contact with uh, Coast Guard, they wound up um, patching me to another channel, and um, from there, uh, I was able to stay in touch with Coast Guard, and um, and CETO was on the same uh, channel as well, so I was communicating both at the same, with both of them at the same time, and uh, like I said, when CETO came to the, uh, to the rescue uh, site, um, I had my VHF radio on the boat on, you know, communicating with Coast Guard, but I had my handheld VHF uh, radio with CETO on a different channel because when uh, Gary, the captain for CETO, actually got out and came to, he got in a P-Rog and paddled to the boat, I was able to contact or stay in touch with him through the, the handheld VHF radio Um and still have communication with with um, with Coast Guard. So yep. I think having both of those two devices, you know, one on a boat and a handheld, I think that actually helped the situation out as well. Right. Chalk another one up for VHF radio use for sure. Very I, vital I, piece I of equipment. A, uh, hey, Don. Yeah. I got a question, and Paul might be able to answer this. I think there's a way. Can't you program your VHF radio? Uh, where it has all your boat information already, so when you do make contact, it sends a signal to Coast Guard with all your information already on there. 
I'm not sure about that. I'm not familiar with how it works, but I think there's a way to do it. Yes, very very quickly, Brian, that's the VHF DSC distress function, that little red flap on your installed VHF radio, and even some portables have that uh, have that functionality uh, these days. But that is VHF DSC distress capability. If you have not programmed that up, that little red distress button on your VHF radio is not going to work. Okay, that's, that's what I kind of thought, because I, I do have that button on my VHF radio, so if I press it now, if it's not programmed... That doesn't do anything, really, right? No, no, it's not going to. It's not going to do you any good at all. And well, I, I can help anybody that wants that help. Uh, to getting their set up can get in touch with me. Okay. All right, guys. Very good. We're, we're just about out of time. Look forward to seeing both of you out there for the exercise next week. And thanks so much for being with us. If uh, maybe we saved lives, maybe we didn't. Maybe we saved some aggravation and discomfort, if nothing else. But certainly worth the time to do it. And thanks again to both of you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Don. Thank both of you. All right, guys. See you all next week. All right, that is going to wrap it up for us today. We will be back again next Saturday morning. We get started dark. and Hey, don't forget, set those clocks back tonight one hour. Easy way to remember it, fall back, spring forward. If not, you could be an hour early for your appointment tomorrow uh, if you don't. Anyway, we'll be back again dark and early as it'll be, 5 a.m. next Saturday morning till 7 o'clock. That's when we... Get all the reports, weather information, local fishing and hunting reports. Maybe take you out to some of the duck blinds next week as we open that up. Also going to talk about this whooping crane situation. I can't tell you how outraged I am at that joke of a slap and a wrist sentence that was passed out to the person who killed that endangered whooping crane. We'll dig more into that next week, as we will a lot of things. Hope you'll join us then for another edition of the Outdoor Show and more outdoors on WWL. FM 105.3 HD2. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.